Thank you, folks, for leading us in worship. That was wonderful, for leading us to the throne of grace. Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 17? For those of you who might be visiting with us, we are in Sermon 218, working our way through the book of Luke. We're trying to get it so that there are no passages here that we're going, well, who knows what that means next. We want to make it so that every part of this is something you're familiar with and you know within its context and uh, you're comfortable with what it's actually trying to say. So Luke chapter 17, we're going to start a couple verses back from our target passage and then get, take it to the end of the chapter so, verse 31. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night... There will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. And answering, they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Heavenly Father, Thank you again, Lord, for this passage, uh, this entire passage, this entire teaching packet is to inform these people who had a wrong eschatology. And Lord, I thank you that at this point in time, you, don't, uh, you didn't just conclude, oh, well, that's not a, a necessary thing or even an important thing. It was. And so you took time as you did several times and and as we go through the book of Luke, 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 we're going to see more times where you want us not to be ignorant. And so, Lord, as we look into this passage, I would pray, Lord, that we would not uh, discount this as, as a, an issue that is of really uh, relegated to little importance in your view. You, you spend a great deal of time on this. And so, Lord, help us to be good students of it good disciples and uh, that we would uh, through this understand what you deliberately and emphatically want us to understand and so lord lead us in that i would pray that you'd help me to be clear and helpful in my comments and uh, in my exegesis of this passage and i would pray lord that you give us hearts that are susceptible to being taught and uh, that we would gravitate to putting aside the things that would distract us and now would really concentrate on, on your word of God, which is life itself. Thank you, Lord, for this time we committed afresh into your hands in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, last week <clears throat> we saw that our Lord reminds his audience that there are a few particulars that they were forgetting about that preceding his coming in power and great glory with his angels to set up his kingdom. There were some things that they had missed. The whole thing started with, verse 20, 
now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming. So he started this whole thing about what is the kingdom of God. And we talked about the first part. He says there's a, there's a phase one coming. And that was fully discussed in the uh, Old Testament. Uh, if you are quick, if you are diligent to believe everything that was written about the Lord, then you go, oh, there's some passages here. There's some things that must needs take place. And so what we talked about last, uh, the, a few times ago was that there's a phase one of the coming of the kingdom where we are in the kingdom, but it, the king is in exile. And now he's talking about some events that are self-evidently needed to take place before we enter into phase two. King is on his throne in his kingdom. So he's reminding them that there are a few particulars they were forgetting about that preceded his coming in power and great glory with his angels. Both the scribes and the Pharisees and the disciples shared an eschatology that the kingdom was coming and it was going to be immediate and the worst of their years of national suffering was now over. How far off that was. But Jesus reminds them, according to scriptures, he as the Messiah was going to be rejected by that generation and killed as a joint project between the Romans and the Jews, the Jews and the Gentiles. Where would they have understood that? But just read it directly, book of Daniel. If he really was the Messiah, it had to be so. He was going to rise again from the dead. Isaiah 53. And then Jerusalem and the nation of Israel were going to be left desolate leveled and there would be horrible continuous persecution of the Jewish people with wars and affliction. He was going to rule in exile for a long period during phase one. And before his coming to rule over the earth, as was also promised, the world culture would, would resemble the cultures of the age of Noah and Lot. And in spite of the warnings to those cultures, the culture in the crosshairs of God's wrath future, in this case the entire world, would be again caught napping, never taking warnings of coming judgment seriously. But the world would experience judgment and that judgment would be sudden, cataclysmic, actually the word cataclysmic, cataclysmos is used in our passage, and we, we, we borrow our English word directly from that, a cataclysm, a horrible event. It would be sudden, cataclysmic, and inescapable. When the Lord came to set up his kingdom, though, people would know it. It wouldn't be misunderstood or kind of vague. Every eye will see. But oh, the details they had failed to account for. So the lesson by Jesus is a lesson on some of the many details the pop prophecy of the day had missed, in particular with this teaching event that he's in now, the time of severe trouble immediately preceding the day of the Son of Man. That's what he's mostly dealing with in this teaching event. The day of the Son of Man, if you want to put it into a handleable soundbite, the day of the Son of Man was preceded by the day of the Lord. And just a quick comment on the day of the Lord. 
there have been many events that are described as the day of the Lord. And most of them are a period of time. What's going on? Well, we see frequently the term day of the Lord is talking about where some of the natural things that you would see where there's, you know, the law of sowing and reaping and so forth are, are set aside. And it's, it's not that. It is where God moves with decisiveness. He, he kind of, in a very personal way, he comes and delivers wrath to a group of people. Case in point, Sodom. Uh, we looked before a long time ago, if you remember, you can look it up, where we talked about the fact that the day of the Lord, um, one book in particular, Amos, was saying the day of the Lord is coming. There's grasshoppers at locusts coming. You're going, it's the day of the Lord, day of judgment. And man, that did happen some months later. And then he says there's a day of the Lord coming. And then he makes the comparison between the locusts coming and the Assyrians who are coming. And what he's trying to do is he's saying, look, this is all sent by the Lord. This is judgment that is coming. A day of the Lord is coming. The Assyrians. And they did come. In a matter of years, they did come. And then the next thing he says, there's a day of the Lord coming. And we're going, okay, we get it. And this one, he goes way, way far into the distance. And he says, uh, and, and here's what's going to happen. And he describes events we've never happened. We've never seen yet. So the day of the Lord, there's sometimes where it's a short Day of the Lord sometimes is a mid-range thing to establish that, yeah, prophecy actually, you need to take it seriously. And then Day of the Lord is, given how you should have interpreted the first two segments, here's how you interpret the last one. And it gives us a bit of a context for what we should do with these things that are yet future. So, the Day of the Lord, the coming of the Son of Man was going to be preceded by the most horrific day of the Lord that had ever been predicted in the Word of God. A time of God's wrath outpoured on the world, an unprecedented tribulation poured out on Israel. He's instructing them all about the judgment wrath that preceded the golden kingdom of the Messiah. So this is the point of the message here. That's how we're jumping into this. So verse 31 to just kind of catch up and gather up what we were talking about last time. On that day, oh, on that day, we have a demonstrative pronoun, that. What is he referring to here? Well, on, on the day that um, they needed to be, it will be just the same. On that day, the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop, whose goods are in the house, must not go down and take them out. In other words, that day is talking about when the day of Wrath descends on the world. So, um, in that day, do you know something? Jesus is even more specific about what that day is in just a few weeks' time. Why don't we just go ahead and peek ahead? Because it's going to be a little bit of time, and I can bring it back up. It'll be fine. Uh, let's even, where he is even more specific of what that day is going to look like. Turn back, if you would, to Matthew Chapter 24, where he talks about in that day, the day he's referring to. Matthew chapter 24. <clears throat> Let's pick it up in verse 15. Therefore, 
When you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, whoever's on the housetop. Does that sound a little familiar? Uh Uh-huh. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not go back to get his cloak and so forth. Oh, so this is connected to the abomination of desolation. That's the day. That's the event he's referring to. And everyone goes, oh, the abomination of desolation. I know what that is. That's, that's where 70 AD, God caused the Roman army to come in, demolish the temple, Demolish big parts of Jerusalem, take people into slavery. That was the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, right? Hmm. Well, actually, it's a surprising number of commentaries that say just that. But one needs to say, but wait a minute. What did Daniel say? What would Daniel say was going to be uh, connected to the abomination of desolation? Was it where... The temple was going to be destroyed. Is that what the issue was? Well, why don't we turn back and, and learn a little bit about it. Daniel chapter 9. You see, when Jesus is doing this teaching, he is taking for granted a group of people who are actually familiar with these passages, or should be, because it was part of the regular lectionary of the group. So they would have had a good deal more understanding of the Old Testament and familiarity than we do. So let's start in Daniel chapter 9. Uh, love to, I've taught through the book of Daniel a few times. Love to go back and do it again, but we'll start here in verse 26. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Two things he says. At the end of the 7 plus 62 group of heptads, seven-year periods, at the end of that period, he says two things are going to happen. Number one, the Messiah is going to be cut off. What, remind me, what does cut off mean? Killed. The Messiah is going to kill. So should they have known that? Yeah. What did they do with that? They go, I don't know. Who knows what that means? Well, we just sort of spiritualize it away. Was that the appropriate way to handle that? No. And then he says... And they're going to destroy the city and the sanctuary. What's that talking about? 70 AD. That is what happened. Destroyed the temple and the sanctuary. City and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will... And then now he's talking about... There's something that goes on past that. What goes on past that? There will be war. Desolations are determined. There's a whole history that has already been written in the annals of God that need to happen in between here. Oh, and and then everything's ready. Well, no, not everything's ready. And he, and we go, so who's the he? Well, in this case, the antecedent of the word he is the prince who is to come. The prince who is to come, well, where did he come from? Well, he is a prince. He's somebody who is of the same nationality as the group who put Messiah to death. He's Roman. 
So this is a Roman prince, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. And again, because uh, we are wanting to translate it into the English, we miss the idea that this is a heptad, a group of seven years. But in the middle of the heptad, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering. On the wings of abomination will come one who makes desolate. In other words, there was a time about three and a half years where they were on the t- well. Wait, whoa, hey, you, temple, temple. Didn't it say in verse twenty-six that the temple is going to get leveled? Mm-hmm. And here he's saying they're in the temple offering up sacrifices. That's right. Uh, so this must be a temple, some other temple, maybe in Chicago, or who knows, maybe Kitscotty. Well, there's only one place that you're allowed to build the temple, and the Jewish people know that, and that's where. That's where Abraham was called on to offer up his son Isaac. It is on Zion, on his holy hill. So they're back on the hill, and they've got a functioning temple. Oh, so at some point in time, it's going to get leveled, and then the temple's going to get rebuilt. But, and, and he's made a covenant with them that for three and a half years, they're doing a sacrifice. Well, he made a covenant for seven years, and at the three and a half year mark, he does something. It says, on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until the complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. That's the abomination of desolation. We could go on to Daniel chapter 7. Why don't we instead look at how the Paul interpreted it? Turn, if you would, to uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians, in case we're wondering, well, is that something that, you know, maybe has already happened? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now we request you, brethren, verse 1, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. So he's already done a good deal of teaching on this, and he's reminding them of a curriculum he shared with them. Because why? Because all of a sudden they're thinking, somebody came along to this group of people and said, are you guys in tribulation? Are bad things happen? Are, are you under official persecution? <gasps> you missed you missed the rapture. The rapture happened, and you've been left behind. Right? Yeah, and and you, you, you missed that whole thing, and now you're in the day of the Lord. Oh, no! Right? And he's trying to reason with them, going, Guys, do you, do you remember the timeline? Do you remember the timeline? He says, So I'm going to talk to you about that. That you not be quickly shaken from your composure... Or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Don't understand that this final day of the Lord has come. Well, how do we know that we're not in that? And there were people during COVID going, hey, maybe, maybe this is it. This is the big one. Uh, it's, it's not a mark. It's, it's, maybe it's an injection. How do we know we're not in the day of the Lord? He says, here's some things. Let no one in any way deceive you. It will not come unless the apostasy comes first. I would love to go. I'd like to spend about three sessions on it, but I'll give you the short dope on this. This is where that which describes itself as the church 
openly endorses the Antichrist. You go, can you, yeah, we can talk about that. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. In other words, you can't be in the day of the Lord, this one, unless the, it says, man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. How do we know? Well, here's some of the things that he does. Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. You can say, well, I, I think I know a prime minister like that. Well, no, you don't yet, because here is the extent of it. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That's the abomination of desolation that, that Daniel is talking about. So, if somebody's wondering, going, man, I wonder, are we in the day of the Lord, that, the final day of the Lord? Just ask yourself a question. Is there an Antichrist who comes from Roman background, who's taken up and he is the world ruler of the entire earth, and he has a seven-year uh, peace treaty between Israel and the surrounding nations, and at the three-and-a-half-year mark, he broke it, and he went into a finished temple on the Temple Mount and said, now everybody worship me. Has that happened yet? Oh, well, you can't be getting the mark of the beast if there ain't no beast around, okay? You just need to kind of work through the timeline issues of this. So, what does Paul identify as the issue of the abomination of desolation? This, okay, this. All right, let's go back, if we can, to uh, verse Acts chapter 17. So we understand on that day, on that day when everything is kicking loose and, and actually it's going to be a horrible day for people who are Jewish, on that day he begins instead of uh, ratifying his peace treaty. Sorry? Do you mean Luke or Acts? I'm sorry, I said Acts, didn't I? Yeah, sorry. Uh, Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. Thank you, honey. Um, so on that day, this is going to be a time of, of tremendous persecution by the Antichrist of Jewish people. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. And again, we'd look at it a little bit further down the road here. We'll see that in a few weeks. And do what? Run for the hills. Run for the mountains and the caves. And then he says, remember Lot's wife. So verse 31, don't try and save, retain your goods, your stuff. Like Lot, you'll have time to escape with your life, he says to this people. If you look back longingly, displaying a love for your goods that eclipses your desire to immediately swiftly obey the Lord... You will be taken in the judgment that is falling on the culture. Because by your affection, you're still part of that culture. You will be taken in judgment. And so he says in verse 32, remember Lot's wife. Boy, was she close to being delivered. Boy, was she close to having escaped. If you hesitate at the loss of all your stuff, you'll be included in and taken in the judgment that's falling on the world. 
And he uses an expression that he's used before. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. The most common command of our Lord in the scriptures is, follow me. That's the most common command. The second most frequent statement is this one. Is this one. It is, whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. He says that many times. This principle is utilized by our Lord over a great many applications. Let's look at just a few of them. Turn, if you would, keep your finger in Luke, not Acts, Luke chapter 17, and go to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. So the issue is not uh, anything other than eternal life and death. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servants will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Uh, he uses it in another context, if I can find my notes. Uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Matthew 10, 34. Start in verse 32, therefore... Everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And then he says, because people are thinking, yeah, but that could cause trouble in my home. You don't understand, that, that could be a rub where I live. That could be a rub among the people that I work with. And he says, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Really? For I came to set a man against his father and a mother against, and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And there he is quoting Old Testament, but he is reiterating, here is the thing about your attachment to truth. It is going to cost you some relationships that you hold dear. And he's giving the warning on that. And then he says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. What is the level of your attachment to this world and your stuff. If you are placed in a pinch point where you must choose between keeping your father happy or your kids happy or your spouse happy, having the approval of these people or having the approval of your heavenly father, which would you choose? Which would you choose? Or put it more graphically, if you were told head out of this city, I'm going to destroy, I'm going to level everything, and don't look back. 
Would you be one of the ones who look back because that's where your treasure is? That's what he's asking you to, to figure out. And you say, well, how would I know? Well, you, you demonstrate it by your own heart today. If you would, God says, I want you to do this in his word. And you say, yeah, but that will make somebody in my family unhappy, so I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take that stand. I'm not going to declare myself to be a disciple, whatever it is. If you would prefer the approval of people in your family over the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll lose it. You'll lose because you are not one of his disciples. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Not a disciple. So, what, what he's saying here in this passage is, what will destroy you, devastate you, on that day, back in Luke chapter 17, the thing that will end up destroying you is, and devastate your personal fortunes in that day is, are you going to seek the approval of the people around you? Are you going to seek the, your own empire and your stuff, your goods, or obedience to the Father? Trying to hang on to your stuff, trying to hang on to your goods above a relationship with God will cost you everything. So, verse chapter Luke, chapter 17, verse 34. That's what we've handled so far. We needed to have the context. Verse 34, I tell you on that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left just so that you understand and don't get sort of sidetracked here, the grammar on this is, is not um, explicit or definitive on whether this is a man and wife or two men. or It doesn't say that. It's just two of humanity are in one bed. One is taken. The other is left. Okay, next one. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in one field. One will be taken and the other left. The immediate thing that comes across is some people are going, oh, I'll bet you that's the rapture. In fact, when I was a kid, there was this uh, movie thing called Left Behind. And it was in the songs. You all sang in camp. And, and, and this was two men walking up a hill. One disappears, the other's left standing. St I wish we'd all been... It, and it was talking about, you missed the rapture. Okay, Is this talking about the rapture? And I would say emphatically not. And so this sermon, I am going to advance three reasons for my assertion. Why we can tell specifically, this is not that. One is contextual. One is textual, and the other is theological. We're going to handle them in that order, because that is a good business-like way to tackle a problem. Let's deal with them in that order. And first is the contextual issue. And that is the old thing of you're standing on a bridge. You're standing on a bridge, and you look down. And the river is running this way on this side, and the running river is running this side on that side, what assumption could you be making about the verse that you're on right now? It's not going that way. 
It is there is a context and a flow of his teaching. And I said again, the flow of his teaching is he's talking about that horrible time just preceding his coming to set up the kingdom. So is Jesus speaking of the troublesome time preceding the day of the Lord, the Son of Man, or is he talking about the blessed hope of the church? To continue the flow of thought, he is correcting the abbreviated, truncated pop prophecy of the day that ignored that there was going to be a time of Jacob's trouble and a time of massive persecution of the nation just before the coming of the Messiah. So there's not a lexical words or grammatical something to do with how the words relate to each other. There's none of those clues that he suddenly changed topic and he's going a different direction. In fact, quite to the contrary, verse 34, example says, um, reads, on that night, there will be, it says, uh, I tell you on that night, what night? Well, the that is referring back to the time he's saying, the time where if this starts hitting, run for the hills. That night, when, when judgment is breaking out. On that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. So, um, the night that he's referring to is the one you need to run for your life if you happen to be in that time frame. So, these examples of people taken selectively, unexpectedly, and suddenly are a continuation of his theme of God pouring out judgment on the entire world and the Antichrist persecuting the nation of Israel. Next piece of evidence, you say, I'm not completely convinced. The next piece of evidence is textual. From the text, verse 37. And answering, they said to him, where, Lord? He said, these people are going to be taken, others left. These people are going to be taken, others left. And he's going, taken where? Where, Lord? Where are they going to be taken? To heaven? And he said to them, where the body is, there also the vultures would be gathered. That sounds like the heaven I want to go to, doesn't it? Where there's rotting corpses and there's birds feeding on them. Doesn't really to me. Um, the ones are taken, it seems, in judgment. The answer is that they are taken so that they are dead and decomposing in numbers large enough and suddenly enough that there's not time for proper normal burial. Some have considered, though it could be, that believers are taken in the rapture, that is, taken alive into heaven. But that means that the other ones are what? Left to the vultures. Um, the rapture does not result in immediate death of everyone else, logically. And the term taken is connected to the term bodies in the grammar. And these bodies are of interest to vultures. Okay, birds of carrion. So from the text, the people are taken into judgment. Let's look at a couple more things here. Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 24, just so we see a fuller description of what's going on here. Matthew chapter 24. But immediately, verse, uh, okay, sorry, uh, verse 27, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So he's talking about a big body count. 
happening. That's what the taken issue is about. And now I'm going to give you, well, we should do one more just so that you understand. It gets kind of graphic and, and fairly um, specific in its descriptions in the Word of God. Turn, if you would, to Revelation chapter 19. Verse 17, speaking of this particular time. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in the mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. The great supper of God for birds. Hmm, what would that be? Well, take a low seat. So that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So what's he referring to here? Actually, God calls it the great supper for birds is what this particular time is talking about. So I will also give you a theological reason. Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here's another reason why I'm uh, fairly confident that this is not talking about the rapture. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll start in verse 50. Now I, I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. You're not going to heaven in the body as you have it now. And for some of us, we go, good, right? Uh, I, that's good news for some of us. For some of you who are, you know, looking quite um, uh, photogenic and so forth, you're going, oh, this could be bad. For some of us, we got, it's nowhere but up, okay? So we're happy that this is not what we're going to go through heaven with. For he says, in a moment, oh, verse 51, we missed our big one. Behold, and here is something where it's a device in the Greek that is, hey, listen up. Behold, uh, basically it's the word look. And it's usually done for emphasis. I'm about to share something that you don't know. I'm about to share something that I haven't told you before. I'm about to show, tell you something that, that nobody knows yet. Behold, I tell you a mystery. So, Paul is the one who is going to be the unfolder of the Greek word, mustirian. And there's many places where the Word of God talks about the unfolding of a mystery. And what he means by that is not, ooh, it's something uh, mystical. It's, that's not the, the term. It is, there is something here that was not revealed in the Old Testament, that was not revealed before now, but now is for the first time being revealed. And there's a number of those things. One of the things that was revealed, that was a mystery that got revealed about 12 years on into the life of the church. Oh, by the way, everyone thought, okay, so Gentiles are going to be joining in the church. Cool. And they will come the normal way. They'll become citizens of Israel like they have been doing all along. And all of a sudden, there's this guy named Cornelius. 
and Gentiles start coming as Gentiles, not where they first of all become proselytes and become Jewish. And he's saying, no, they come into the kingdom without being bar mitzvah, sons of the covenant. He says, this was a mystery. This was not something that was not anticipated before. Now we're telling you about it. Well, here's another one of those. Uh, he says, flesh and blood does not um, inherit the kingdom of God. Behold, I show you a mystery, something that has never been revealed yet. We will not all sleep. He's not talking about insomnia. He's talking about the sleep that happens in the word sleeping dormitory. That is a cemetery. Not everybody's going to die. Did Old Testament believers know that? Was there something where they could have anticipated that? No. This is something deliberately new. Not everybody's going to die. But we will all be changed. So in other words... People who have died are going to be changed. And there's going to be people when this event takes place who are also going to be changed without dying. Oh, that's new ground. That's something different. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and that's talking about a very small um, angstrom-sized particle of time. It's actually the time it takes for the speed of light to hit your the focusing part of the lens of your light and go to the back of where you receive, which is pretty quick if you figure out the speed of light, okay? So this is quicker than you can blink is the idea. Twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. Did they know that? Oh yeah, they knew that. But, and we will be changed and there's the idea of people who are alive will be changed. For this perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortality must put on immortality. He said the same thing, the same concept, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. <clears throat> we don't want you, verse 13, to be ignorant, uninformed brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Here were some people who were going, man, we've been told, we got the memo that there's going to be people who are instantaneously changed and don't have to go through death. And then they go, oh, but poor Billy. Billy died last week. Oh, he's going to miss that whole thing. Man, poor Billy. Uh, Billy got the short end of the stick. You're going, no, no. I don't want you to grieve as do others, the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, believers, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Bring with him. Oh, where are believers right now? With him. In body? No. Their soul spirits are with him right now. But can they go through all of time and eternity in some sort of a spirit? Thing, you go, well, yeah, that's the... No. The whole point of 1 Corinthians 15 is, no, you go through eternity with a body. That's what the whole thing about the resurrection is. You get a body. Not that you're floating off in some crowd, cloud, strumming a harp and eating cream cheese. It is that you actually go through eternity with physicality. Okay? So... He's going to bring those with him who've fallen asleep. 
For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. In other words, this is not something that we're quoting something from the Old Testament. We're giving you uh, new information. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, not some sort of a spirit, not some influence, he himself physically, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. They're going to be physically given a resurrection body. Then we who are alive and remain will be, and there's where our word is, harpazo, snatched, it's like the word harpoon in some ways, snatched out from the middle of a crowd, will be snatched up, and if you want to translate that into Latin, you'd say rapturo, which is where we get our idea of the rapture from, then we who are, will remain be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Well, so this isn't really all that important. He's saying there's times where people in the body of Christ need some encouragement. Well, what would you say to encourage somebody? These words. These are the words that are supposed to be the ones that give you tremendous hope even if you're in a desperately bad situation. How do you come along and help a brother or sister in the Lord and give them hope? There's going to come a day where you're going to be snatched away and, and you're pulled out of this. And, and it might not be that you're just waiting till you die and get delivered out of this. It could happen before then. Okay, so he said, though, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I am declaring to you for the first time a mystery, something that was not talked about before, but I am now giving you hard data because the Lord told me. So here's our theological reason, and that is that Paul is saying for the first time, I'm declaring this to you. So will you read about the idea of believers are going to be changed and given their resurrection body without dying and be snatched up, harpazo, from within a crowd in the Old Testament? No, you're not going to see that. Will you see it when we get to the Olivet Discourse and Christ is talking about the things that are to come? No, because the unveiling of the mystery happened about almost 20 years after Pentecost. And here's the deal. Until Paul was given the distinction and the honor of revealing this truth to the church, which was a signator of the fact that he was an apostle. It was one of those things where God was demonstrating, no, this guy is the real deal. He's an apostle. He's given the honor of revealing this to the entire church. So until Paul was given the distinction and honor of revealing this truth to the church, these t details were deliberately kept of mystery. And again, I say for about 20 years after the death, burial, and ascension, resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Well, now that we know what is being uh, taken in, results in, back in Luke chapter 17, uh, two women grinding at the same place, one will be taken. Now we know that this is not taken in the rapture, it's taking in judgment what are we supposed to learn from that? What are we to learn about the time immediately preceding the Son of Man 
coming with his angels in great power and glory that every eye shall see. Well, first of all, let's look at a few things. Whatever it is, it's a worldwide event. How do you know it's a worldwide event? Well, because two are sleeping. And at the same event, two women were at their daytime job grinding. And another two over here are men working in a field. So when this happens, some of the globe is sleeping while some are up and working. The event is global rather than just some limited local phenomenon. Isn't that interesting? The day of the Lord, this one here, happens to the entire world and catches them at whatever part of the spin of the globe they're in. Interesting. Next, people are surprised and interrupted from actually doing very ordinary things, like in the days of Noah, like in the days of Lot. Those taken in judgment were, were carrying on with their normal lives when judgment struck suddenly. Next one we learn, and this one is frightening, the ratio of those taken in judgment and those spared is described here as one to one, which means there is massive carnage, which accounts for the great supper of the Lord. There is going to be massive bloodshed in this event. Did the disciples, did the Pharisees and scribes, had they accounted for any of that? No. All those passages that described uh, the time of Jacob's trouble being unparalleled, and the, they just kind of said, ah, maybe it's some sort of a spiritual reality, right? So there is a horrible ratio. This is a massive and apocalyptic casualty to survivor, survivor ratio. So much so that the burial efforts are overwhelmed and the corpses are left out to the elements and the scavenging animals and fowl. So let's go to verse 32. He says, remember Lot's wife. He's saying there's going to be a tremendous carnage. Remember Lot's wife. Have you ever thought about that? Here they were told, run for the hills. Judgment's coming. Everything in your old, your old life is going to be absolutely burned up in fire and brimstone. Nothing left. What was it that caused, when you can hear behind you, the sound like the, that there's the end of the world happening back there, what would cause her to go, wait a minute, and look back? What's going on in her heart? What's, what's happening in her, in her head? What was back there? We go, you know something? There's, there's quite a bit of room here for what we would say a bit of sympathy for the poor girl. What was back there? Her family? Her kids? Her stuff, her social set that she felt part of, her identity, run away from that, her house, her identity, where she fit in society, start 
over something. Her whole life was back there. You go, well, man, we can, we can sure sympathize with her. At least our hearts are tempted toward that. To escape Sodom was really to escape her. What was needed of her at that moment was a first prime ruling loyalty to the Lord above her children, her stuff, and her social identity. I'll say that one more time. What was needed of her at that moment was a first prime ruling loyalty to the Lord above her children, her stuff, and her social identity. Do you remember when Jesus is talking to the seven churches and he talks to one church, he said, this I have against you, you've left your first love? And I've heard so many sermons that talk about, oh, they've just lost their passion. You know what it's like, you know, when you first start out dating and all of a sudden you fell, you know, in the warm, cuddly quiveries with, your, with this new boyfriend and you're just sort of wrapped up and it's your whole world. And, and he's saying you've kind of lost that toward, no, that's no, totally not what he's talking about. Okay. When he talks about you've lost your first love, it's not some sort of a, an, an emotional liver quiver. Did you have a prime loyalty to him above anything else, your empire, other people, your stuff? That's what your first love is. It means this is the thing that you love above all, everything else. Is that you? Do you have a first love for the Lord above everything else, including your kids, including your parents, including your empire, including your dreams, including your whatever it is. Do you have that? What was needed at this moment for you is a first prime ruling loyalty to the Lord above your children, your stuff, and your social identity, and your empire, and your goods, and your everything. For Lot's wife, her heart, her first love, her loyalty was there, and so quite naturally, she shares in the judgment that the culture receives. You go, but, but, but those are her kids. Those are her kids that mock the word of God, the world of God, and as a heart direction prefer a lifelong loving attachment of companionship to God-rejectors. Those are the kids. And you say, but, but that was her home. That was her home. It was a home whose walls embrace rather than repel the social standard of sin of the day. That home with the compromise and the accommodations to the extreme self sinfulness of the culture needed to burn to the ground. For the sake of the glory of God and for her own heart. If she was going to be a follower of the Lord... Her very social identity needed to be completely torn down and made from scratch. But as that turned out, 
that was not really who she was, was it? And her moment of disobedience, in spite of the warning where she goes, where is my heart? What, what actually do I really care about? And she turned back. What she did is she showed a preferential love for this world, a preferential love for her stuff above obedience to God. You go, boy, that's pretty severe. Would God do that to me? Yep. Yes, he would. In Matthew chapter 6, you're familiar, but we will review again. Matthew chapter 6. Don't store up treasures for yourselves on earth, verse 19, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you have a surpassing love for the Father, for Christ, which amounts to obedience, or do you like your stuff? Where your heart is. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will love the one and hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Where your treasure is. So, this is talking about a time where people, the nation of Israel, is going to be in a tremendous amount of turmoil. But the concept of whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it and whoever loses his life will preserve it. That rings true to us today still. We don't have a gun to our heads. Nobody's saying choose your kids or choose the Lord. But nevertheless, if you hesitate in your heart, at the loss of all your worldly stuff, your goods, and that that is too big a price to pay for a relationship with the Lord. What he's telling us is you will be included in and taken in the judgment that's falling on the world because you show yourself to be part of the world. Let me conclude with a very good and helpful warning from John. First John. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. And he's not saying, oh, don't, don't have it so that you uh, hate chocolate and don't like uh, sunsets. He's talking about things of the world system, that this is your home, that this is your life, okay? Do not love the world nor the things that are in the world. Don't have a prime loyalty to the world or the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And here's the logic that goes from there. The world is passing away. This world is going to go up in smoke. And also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God 
lives forever. Where's your first love? Where's your first loyalty? If there is some sin you would commit, even because it's a love in your life, if you will choose to do that sin rather than obey, or if you don't get this thing that you really want, you will sin because you don't get it, it's an idol. And it is a prime idol. It means that that is the thing that you're worshiping and not God. Well, God says, here's a thing that's true about disciples. They have chosen, they have willed in their heart that my first loyalty, my first choosing of who I'm going to please is God. And he says, if you're not doing that, if, the, if that's not an ongoing part of your struggle and your fight where you are continually uh, changing and captivating sin in your and fighting sin in your life. If that's not what's going on, you're not a disciple. You're religious. You're hoping to have enough religion in your life that you will somehow please God with it. But if you're going to be a follower of the Lord, you have to love him above everything else, including your you and your empire. And that's what he says it takes to avoid being like Lot's wife. And so he concludes with, guys, remember Lot's wife. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this rather grim reminder of what happens to people whose first love is not the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, I would pray that if that has not occurred yet in some people's hearts and minds here, that they would repent of themselves, that they would repent of their preference for their own kingdom, and Lord, that on this occasion right now, they would have as their first choice of loyalty, choose to place themselves under the authority of God, under the authority of his word, and begin to follow him as a disciple. I pray, Lord, you would do that by your spirit for your glory, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll have a hymn, and then we're going to go into the communion service.